Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Christian. I'm one of the, the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. This is the first time I've gotten to preach since we've been back indoors, um, even on this little lower stage we built out, so that way we're not as high and far from you, but get to be closer as we communicate. There is, we, I could speak for all of us, though we are grateful for cameras and things like that. If I never have to talk to another camera again, I'd be totally fine with that. But as I mentioned, I am one of the elders here, and I just wanted to, to remind you, um, many of you probably did see the letter that Todd sent out on Friday on behalf of all of us as, as elders. And if there was any question, we truly did craft that together. We truly do speak together on that. So I just wanted to say thank you to those of you who are honoring us by honoring our request to, to wear your masks as a way to honor the governing officials above us. Totally get it if some of you are not able. And I would just say, if you are able, but you don't want to, just want to remind you, we do have the speaker set up outside. We got chairs you can sit out there. Um, would love for you to be able to join that way if you choose to not uh, wear your mask. Um, and I just want to say hi to everybody out there. I can't see you, but the folks that are out in the parking lot, love y'all too. So glad to have you with us. And that's the last I want to talk about that. Let's get into God's word. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 16. We are beginning or continuing our series that we're calling Bear Fruit. We're looking at this, this upper room discourse um, portion of Jesus's ministry in John chapters 14 through 17. If you were with us last week out in the parking lot or maybe you saw it online, uh, Spencer took us through the end of John 15. And the passage we're gonna look at today really like, uh, it just continues the conversation from last week. So I thought it might be helpful right off the bat just to quickly summarize the three main points that Spencer had for us last week. If you look at the very end of John chapter 15, we see this place where Jesus tells his apostles that they are to witness because they've been with him from the beginning. And that call to witness continues to us as the people of God. So that was the first point. We are called to witness for Jesus, both by clearly declaring the good news about who Jesus is and then displaying that through lives that are shaped by the fruit of the Spirit, by love and joy and peace and patience. Or the way we talked about it in our earlier series in the spring, as we walk like Jesus walked. But Spencer's second point from this passage was that if we walk like Jesus walked, the world will hate us for it, just like they hated Jesus. That they will see the fruit of the Spirit not as things that are beautiful and good, but as foolish or weak or just flat out wrong and will fight against it. And often, just like it was for Jesus, the fiercest attacks will come from religious people. So we are called to witness, but if we do it well, the world will hate us. And then his last point was, but we can do it because God has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us and even to partner with us in our witness, amen? So we're gonna continue this same conversation of what it means to witness in partnership with the Spirit by looking at this passage in John chapter 16. We're gonna start partway through verse four. Would you follow along with me as I read this? I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority or from himself. He's not, these don't just be his words, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. And there is so much gold in this passage. We don't even have enough time to get through half of it. And initially what drew me to this passage was that statement that Jesus makes in verse seven where he says it's to our advantage that he goes away. How can it be better to not have Jesus here? And I wanted to give this message about the, the whole purpose of God in giving us his spirit and how it fulfills God's intention for humanity from the beginning. And then I stopped and thought, oh wait, I actually gave four messages on that a couple years ago. Back in 2018, we did a series called Being Human that was all about God's intention in creating humans in his image to indwell us with his spirit, to dwell with us. And so if you're intrigued by that, I encourage you, that's all those messages are on our website. Feel free to go back and, and look at those. But what I wanna do with our limited time this morning is just really tunnel in on this idea of what Jesus says in this passage about what the Spirit does for us and for the world in this mission of witness that we have. Does that make sense? We're actually gonna look at them kind of in reverse order in the passage. At the end, Jesus talks about what the Spirit does for us. And I wanna do that first, because I actually wanna spend a little less time there and more on this idea of what the Spirit does for the world. So if you will, look again at verse 12. What does the Spirit do for us that will be better than having Jesus here? There's two things he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And then at the end, he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus says to his apostles, the 11, Judas has already gone to get the posse to come arrest Jesus. But with the 11 that are there with him, Jesus says, the things that you cannot bear now, the spirit will guide you into that truth. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, notice I said, this is what Jesus says to the apostles. He says that the Spirit will guide them into truth. He will reveal to them what is to come. But what does that have to do with us? Does the Spirit guide us? Does he reveal to us what is to come? Absolutely. And you know how he does it? Because right here in this book, we have the record of what the Spirit guided the apostles to understand about who Jesus is and what he did 
revealing what is to come, that amazing promise that Anil just read for us from Revelation 21, that one day God will wipe our tears from our eyes, heal our pains, death will be no more. Are you not glad that the Spirit revealed to the apostles what is to come? He guides us through his word. Furthermore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the Spirit actually is the one who opens our minds, who gives us the ability to understand what he's revealed. He guides us in understanding God's word. But the Spirit is concerned with much more than just passing on information about Jesus to us. Look in verse 14. Do you wanna know what the main goal the Spirit has is? What's his main objective? Look at verse 14. Jesus says, he will glorify me. That's the Spirit's main objective in our lives, to glorify Jesus, to show us his glory, to make it clear to us how big of a deal Jesus is, to draw our attention to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, the one before whom every knee will bow, to fix our eyes on Jesus and then hold it there. That's what the Spirit is here to do. But here's the thing. I love what Paul says a little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, he lets us know what the end result of the Spirit's mission to glorify Jesus in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that as we see the glory of Jesus, the Spirit transforms us into the same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Get that. The Spirit glorifies Jesus in our eyes so that as we see how beautiful and amazing and powerful Jesus is, we start to become like him with the result that we begin to display what he's like in the world. We display his glory through our lives and through our actions. It all comes back to witness. But again, like Spencer told us last week, if we do this, expect the world to not like it. At the same time though, as we see in this passage, expect that as we do that, some will see the beauty of Jesus. They will see the truth of the gospel and they will turn and they will believe. So now let's talk about what the spirit does for the world. I won't use this stand anymore. It doesn't stay put, it likes to move on me. Verse eight, look at verse eight. What does the spirit do for the world? Jesus says this, when the heat comes, when the helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit's primary role in this world is conviction. Think about that for a second. Some commentators look at this word convict and, and they think of it in like, like a legal sense. Like when a jury convicts a criminal for the crime. That may be what Jesus has in mind. And clearly we see in what the Spirit revealed to the disciples that yes, there is a judgment in the end. But this word convict can also be translated, the idea is to, to convince, to prove, to expose the reality of something. In that sense, the Spirit's convicting work is to convince people of the truth of the gospel, to convince them of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection to convince them of their hopelessness without Jesus so that they turn and repent. I think that's 
the main idea that Jesus has here when he talks about the Spirit's convicting ministry. Because, I mean, think about it. Is that not the way the Spirit's work has played out over the last 2,000 years? Is that not why you are here and I am here? Can you think back to that moment, or maybe it was a series of moments when you went, oh my gosh, this is true. Maybe for you, it was like the Apostle Paul. You're walking along one day and bam, Jesus is real. Maybe it was a gradual process and years in development of different people speaking truth into your life. And then finally, you saw the beauty of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're somewhere in the midst of that process. You're not a follower of Jesus yet. And my prayer for you throughout this week is that even now as I'm speaking, the Spirit would do his convincing work in your life and that this would be the day that you trust in Jesus. But man, let's, let's look a little bit closer about how Jesus describes this convincing, convicting ministry of the Spirit to the world. First, Think again about that word world. If you were with us last week, do you remember when Spencer brought out the big trash bag with the balloons in it? Remember that? Did you get distracted like I did, like watching the balloons drift around the parking lot for like the next 10 minutes of his message? Okay, yeah, I got distracted, but I had to try to remember what was the point of the illustration? Do you remember? What was the point of that illustration? The big trash bag is the world. The balloons inside of it represented what? What's that? Okay, different groups of people within the world, right? That the world is this big, huge umbrella term, but then you can break it down. Jews, Gentiles, Romans, people, tax collectors, everything like that. There's all these other groups that all fit within the world. And Spencer made the point last week that in this section of John, which balloon, which group within the world is the main focus of what Jesus is talking about? The What's that? The, the Jewish religious leaders at his time. That's the world he has in mind. The ones that were hating him because of his ministry. The ones who even right now are gathering the posse to come and arrest him. And so everything that Jesus says from here on about the convicting ministry of the world, keep in mind, he has these guys primarily in focus, but it applies much beyond that. Let, let, me, let me unpack it for you. Look at verse nine. Jesus says, the Spirit's ministry is to convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Think about that in the life of Jesus. All of the scheming and the plotting and the giving Judas money and arranging to arrest him in such an underhanded way and making sure that Jesus would be beaten and killed in the most shameful way possible all stemmed from the fact that the Jewish religious leaders did not believe that Jesus is their Messiah.
Concerning righteousness, the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. I think the best way to understand this one is that the Spirit's convicting work in regard to righteousness isn't so much about convicting people about their righteousness or their, the lack thereof, but it's about convincing people of Jesus' righteousness. Let me unpack this for you in one second once Billy plugs me in. We're getting, getting friendly. We're getting friendly. All righty. Thank you. One of the things that has always made me laugh about our church is that whenever there's an awkward pause, when in doubt, we clap it out. We just, we, we fill the awkward silence with clap, and I love it. It makes me laugh every time. Okay, so this convicting in regard to righteousness here in verse 10, I think it's talking about convicting the world that Jesus is righteous. And here's why I think that. Everything that was done to Jesus in his arrest, his beating, his crucifixion, all of it, it was done so that everyone would see Jesus die like despised criminals die. To be heaped with shame and indignity. To be seen in the eyes of the people as an object of ridicule. Not someone to be pitied and certainly not someone to be followed. But then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Victorious. 40 days after that, he ascended back to heaven where he is even right now seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is saying that my resurrection and my ascension will vindicate my righteousness. It will show that despite everything done to me by those who were seen as righteous, it was actually the reverse. Jesus is the righteous one, and the religious leaders were those who were exposed as shameful and guilty. And the Spirit's role is to convince people of that. Despite everything done to Jesus, he is the righteous one. Look at verse 11, the third thing he says, that the Spirit's role is to convict the world concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That phrase, ruler of this world, is used throughout the book of John as a reference to Satan, to that serpent in the garden, the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the beginning to listen to him instead of God. And from the moment that they listened to his voice instead of the voice of God, they came under and were bound to his rule. And yet God made this amazing promise all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, that one day a descendant of the woman would come and he would crush the serpent. And Jesus is saying, that's who I am. I'm the snake crusher. I am here to judge the ruler of this world and make a way that those who are trapped under, under his rule can be freed. I love the way that Paul puts it in Colossians 1 when he talks about how what God has done for us in Jesus is he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan's power over people has been broken. The decisive blow of his defeat has been struck. And what the Holy Spirit revealed later to the apostles is that one day this serpent will be thrown forever into the lake of fire. Amen? 
But here's the thing. So will everyone who is still under his rule. If you have not sought rescue through Jesus as your king, Satan is still your king. And you share in the destiny that he has. This is why the gospel is so important. Like Jesus truly is the only hope for the world. And the Spirit's ministry is to convince people in the world that they have no hope apart from Jesus. Everything that Jesus explains here about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we kind of almost see a play-by-play of it in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. If you're familiar with that story, you know this is the day when Jesus fulfills what he says here. He pours out the spirit on his apostles and they're empowered to speak in languages that they didn't know before and it creates quite a buzz, right? People from all over the place in Jerusalem come running to figure out what all the commotion is about. And in that moment, the spirit empowers Peter to witness, to witness to the righteousness of Jesus to witness to the sinful, shameful things that were done to Jesus, to witness to the fact that Jesus was vindicated through his resurrection. He's at the right hand of God. That's why he's poured out the spirit. He is your Lord and Messiah. And how does the crowd respond? It says they were cut to the heart. They called out to Peter and the others, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will receive this same Holy Spirit, right? Do you see the pattern that we just walked through in John 16 in that story? The Spirit empowers their witness. They witness for Jesus and the Spirit does his convincing work and 3,000 people were added to their number that day. This is what the Spirit does. This is his job. But please understand me. This is the main point. If you've been wondering what it is, here it is. We witness for Jesus in partnership with the Spirit. He empowers our witness. But it is his job to convince and convict people of the truth of it. Let me say that again. We witness with the Spirit, but he's the one who convinces people. We have to keep that straight in our heads We have to keep it straight because there's a great danger when we flip that around and we get it backward. If you start to think that your job, that our job is to be the convictors, gosh, that really is what we'll lead with in our witnessing. And I think it happens far too often right now. Rather than leading with good news of the goodness and beauty and rescue of Jesus, we lead by wanting to make people feel guilty for how bad They are. Too often, witness looks like what you do with your dog when it pees on the couch. You hold their nose in it so they know how bad and gross what they did is. If that resembles your witness to others, whether in person or on social media, then I say this in love but firmly as your pastor, you need to repent. That is not the way that Jesus has called us to represent him. 
Instead of speaking good news, we call out badness in people. Instead of living lives demonstrated by goodness, displaying good works, instead, we focus on wanting to make people see how bad their works are. I mean, honestly, who would be compelled by that kind of witness? The worst part about it is this. If we make it our mission to convict people for their sin, we usurp the role of the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? We take his job, which is not ours, and we can't do it, and we fail at our job. Our role, our calling as God's people is to compassionately and boldly and joyfully witness to the good news of Jesus and to make that clear. But when we try to take the Spirit's job of convicting, we don't make the gospel clear. We actually create more confusion. And the danger is that the very people that we want to reach end up rejecting not the true gospel, but the distorted picture that we've given them. Do you see why this matters? Now you might be thinking, okay, well, does this mean we just ignore evil and sin in the world? Of course not, of course not. Is there a place for us to call out sin and confront injustice? Absolutely. Even Jesus said back in John 7 that one of the reasons the world hated him was because he testified against them that their deeds were evil. But understand this. How did Jesus testify against the world that their deeds were evil? Was it primarily by calling out their evil or by doing good? I think when you read the gospels, you absolutely see Jesus went about doing good works, speaking good news that God's kingdom was there in him. And he didn't have to lead with confrontation. That goodness confronts. Does that make sense? Jesus talked about it in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus that he came as the light to the world, but people loved darkness rather than light and they refused to come to him. It was Jesus's light that created the contrast to the darkness of the world. And I would say to you, based upon what I see in the New Testament, we are called to witness for Jesus in the same way. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls us as God's people to walk as children of light. And in so doing, we will expose the unfruitful works of darkness that he talks about there. Not by making it our aim to expose darkness, but by making it our aim to walk in light. In a similar way, in Romans 12, Paul in the same way tells us not to repay evil for evil, not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with what? Do you see that? We overcome evil, we confront evil, we show a contrast to the evil of our world by doing good in our words and in our actions. We make the goodness of Jesus known. And then we trust the Spirit to do His convicting work in people's hearts. Amen? If you're part of a community group, if you're part of a home fellowship, um, there's some, uh, in your discussion guide for this week, there's some things for you to discuss in regard to both what are, what are evils that we can identify in our world, whether in, in people that we know or societal evils. 
And then identifying what are good things that we can do to create the contrast to those evils. There's a ton of places you could go in that conversation. And I hope that you will with the conviction that we confront evil through doing good and the spirit does his convicting work. But if you will, let me, let me offer to you two essential starting points for this conversation. Two essential good works that Jesus calls us to do right here in this same section of John that we've been studying. And Jesus says that if we do these things, the world will notice. They will know the truth of the gospel. That seems like we should pay attention to it, right? If Jesus says, if you do this, the world will know, it's like, it's like field of dreams, right? If you build it, they will come, right? If you do this, the world will know. Let me show you what it is. Uh, John chapter 13. I totally forgot to use my slides this whole time. It's, I'm out of practice on it. All right, let's see. I'll click through and we'll get to it. There we go. Back. John 13, at the beginning of this section, Jesus makes this statement to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And then at the end of this section in 17, as Jesus is now praying to the Father on our behalf, he says this. He says, I pray that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. He says it again, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. The two surefire, absolutely, this is what we build everything off of for our witness that Jesus gives us here is our love for one another and our unity together. The two things that I would say have been most severely tested in our church and in a lot of churches over the events of this past year. The distance, the differences, the disagreements has put us all in a weird place. I don't know about you. I feel so insecure in where I'm at in so many relationships simply because we haven't had regular time together like we did before. Or maybe things have come up. And one thing I've come across so often right now, a lot, we've gotten into bad habits of taking what someone said and going 15, 20, 30 steps down the road in what we think it might mean and then holding people by that. And it's really just really bad friendship. It's a bad way to conduct a friendship. Love in unity are essential to our witness. They are two of the things that have been most tested in the events of this past year. And I don't think that that's coincidental. Could it be that our enemy, this ruler of the world who knows that his doom is sure, knows how essential our love and our unity are to our witness? And that if he can get us squabbling with each other, he can get us separating and splintering off from each other, it will cut the legs out of whatever we say about who this Jesus is. Could it be that this is why love and unity throughout the New Testament are seen as such a big deal to who we are as God's people? 
Cornerstone, I love you. I think this right here is where our test lies in these days. In the midst of so much division and confusion and disagreement in our world, will we as God's people, will we as Cornerstone Community Church in Simi Valley, California, will we lean into and value love for one another and unity together as more essential than our preferences and opinions? Will we value the fruit of the Spirit, especially ones like patience and gentleness and self-control at a time when I would say brashness and contentiousness and impulsiveness are much more popular both in the world and sadly in the church? Will we in this time give thought, like Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 10, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all or just what makes sense in my eyes? This is the test we face right now. Cornerstone, I hope you hear my heart. I know that this has been a year unlike any other. But I truly believe that our love and our unity are essential to our witness. They've always been essential to our witness, even if we've allowed other things to crop up. And my prayer for you, my church family, is that the Holy Spirit would do his convicting work right here amongst us, like he's doing in my heart right now, that love and unity are worth fighting for, way more worth fighting for than so many things that people are choosing to fight about right now. Do you hear me? I love you all. Let's remember what we're called to do and let's go for it, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Spirit, thank you for guiding us. Thank you for leading us into truth. Thank you for revealing us what is to come so that even when life feels upside down, when we're not sure what's going on or who to trust, we know, as Todd's reminded us so often, Jesus wins. You are king. You are Lord. You are Messiah, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, you are the convincer. You open our eyes to understand it. I pray right now for those who maybe are not followers of Jesus yet, but they're interested, they're curious, they're wondering, they're dealing with baggage from their past or whatever it is. Holy Spirit, would you right now, even beyond maybe what they can cognitively understand, would you convince them in their hearts that this is true, that they would begin to walk in this path? Would you show us how, as a church how to come alongside of them and be these disciples, these learners, these followers together? For your glory, we want to see See me, Valley, see your glory. Even though they may hate us in regard to it, some will see and believe and join us, and we long for that day. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.